Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. When you have to make a tough choice, what process do you follow? Do you seek common ground and compromise, or dig in your heels and insist on your original perfect vision? It turns out there may be a third option. Jennifer Riel has been working with Roger Martin to share their research on integrative thinking, which teases out the best of opposing ideas to uncover a new and sometimes unexpected approach. In this episode of Hack the Process, Jennifer will share how she went from a liberal arts major into the world of executive consulting, what role mentorship has played in her career choices, and why her work focus has broadened from the business world to the elementary school classroom. Today, I'm talking with Jennifer Riel. She has a book out recently called Creating Great Choices, and I believe you're also a professor at a business school, correct? That's right. I teach at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto in Canada. The Rotman School, and you're teaching, I believe, with your co-author, correct? Yeah, he taught here for many years. He's the former dean of the Rotman School. So Roger and I started working together. I was actually a student of his. So my original background, I have a liberal arts degree, English literature and history. Obvious for someone working at a business school that that would be my undergrad. And I was working as a creative. I decided to get an MBA and learn the secret handshake, all the language of business that I didn't know. Met Roger, who was then dean, and he asked me to work with him when I graduated. He asked me to stay for a year and said we would work on taking this theory of integrative thinking and building it added into something teachable and learnable. And that was 12 years ago. So integrative thinking now, and I know that that's been the core of what you've been doing, I guess, for the last 10 years. Can you give us all a thumbnail overview of what that means? So integrative thinking is an idea that Roger really had generated through his work as a management consultant before he became dean of the Rotman School. And he had observed that lots of us, when we're faced with a really unhappy trade-off, kind of accept that that's how the world works that we're just going to have to make the tough choice and move on with our lives, but that there was a small subsection of really successful leaders that he had met and observed in his time as a management consultant who made a different choice, who said, when I'm confronted with a miserable either or choice, a choice that I wish I didn't have to make, it is my job to create a better option, to actually use the tension inherent in the either or choice to create that better choice. And so using the tension, that sounds like something that a lot of people might be very intimidated by. Yes. And I think if we go all the way back to when I first started working with Roger, he was in the process of publishing a book called The Opposable Mind. He tells great stories of highly successful leaders, CEOs of great global companies like A.G. Laffley from Procter Gamble, Isidore Sharp from The Four Seasons. And he talks about how they made these choices and then seems to suggest that we all would be better off if we could do it too but he doesn't really have a process for us for how we might do it. If it doesn't come naturally, it came naturally to AG, it came naturally to Izzy, it didn't come naturally to me. And so I wanted to dive in and understand how someone could leverage the tension of opposing ideas. What does that look like? What does it feel like? What are the steps 
that you could go through. So it's not such an intimidating idea, but rather a process or a methodology you can follow. It's a difficult concept to visualize. And can you tell me what it means, though, to to take advantage of opposing ideas and really leverage that? I'm, I'm trying to picture it in my own mind. Yeah. So let's let's go back to one of the original stories that, that Roger wrote about in The Opposable Mind. He writes about Isidore Sharp, founder of the great hotel chain Four Seasons. And Izzy's a Canadian, so we love telling that story. I'm a Canadian. Our secret ambition as Canadians is to tell Americans that we're awesome <laughs> so that Americans will know that we're just as awesome as you are. So Izzy is a, is a great Canadian. He started out his career as a hotelier, as a hospitality person with the Four Seasons Motor Inn. You have to imagine that's very different from what we conceptualize as the Four Seasons today. It was a little 100-room motel, essentially. Slightly nicer than your average motel, but by no means what we would expect from Four Seasons today. And he loved it. He loved the intimacy and warmth and human connection, but it wasn't very scalable. It didn't have the amenities that business travelers want because with only 100 rooms, really hard to afford all the meeting rooms and restaurants and all of those other things. So his second hotel, he decides to try the other dominant model in the world of hotels. He decides to build a massive mega hotel, very luxurious, 1,600 rooms, every amenity a business traveler could ever need, highly successful, easy to scale. You can afford every amenity because you have so many rooms. And he hated running it. He thought it was cold and impersonal and had given up everything he loved about his little motel. So lots of us would either give up and say, well, which of them made me slightly happier? I can run these little motels and never really scale to the level that I want, or I can make a lot of money running these big hotels, or I can try to find the compromise, the middle ground, a medium-sized hotel like Goldilocks, right? If small is too small and big is too big, then maybe I'll just build a medium-sized hotel. But the problem with that, of course, is it's neither small enough to be truly warm, intimate, and human. It's not big enough to have all of the amenities of the big hotel. It's a miserable compromise. It's not as good as either one. And so what Izzy wanted was a better answer. He wanted a hotel chain that gave you even more warmth, intimacy, human connection, feeling of home than you can get from that small motel. But even better amenities, exactly the amenities that a business traveler truly wanted and needed to feel productive and connected. So the way he did that was to say, well, there are things I love about the small motel, things I love about the large hotel. I can't just squish them together into a Frankenstein option. I need to conceptualize the problem differently. I need to think differently about what I truly value and question some assumptions. And the, the assumption he fundamentally questioned was around what luxury really is. He had a hypothesis that even though his big convention hotel was extremely opulent, had really sort of obsequious service, that actually the business travelers spending time there weren't terribly happy to be there. And if you travel for business, you might recognize this feeling, right? It's another night in another hotel that isn't home. It's alienating. It's uncomfortable. And so he said, what if luxury wasn't the building? And it wasn't having a bunch of people sort of bowing and scraping to your every whim. What if luxury was how you felt? What if luxury was that feeling he remembered from the small motel of being truly welcomed, of having a human connection? And could you imagine building a hotel that wasn't around opulence, but was around that feeling? 
So he created the Four Seasons to replicate the support system, the feeling of uh, connection that you get when you are at home and you're at the office. And so he did things that now seem obvious. Put shampoo in the showers. (laughs) Seems obvious. Asked his staff to treat you warmly and like a friend rather than like someone you work for. And was able to create a mid-sized luxury hotel. It does end up being mid-sized, but with a totally different way of thinking about what a hotel is. It gives you all the warmth and intimacy of that small motel and all of the amenities of the big one. Because it turns out if you can deliver that feeling of home, of comfort, you can charge a ridiculous price premium for it. (laughs) If you stay to the Four Seasons, you know it's a ridiculous price premium and yes, the hotel is perfectly lovely, but it's designed not to be over the top opulent. It's designed to make you feel totally comfortable, totally welcomed and totally at home. So the choices that he was working with had to do with whether he focuses on small and intimate or large and sort of off-putting, but opulent. And he was able to marry those two by finding the best of both. Yes, that's the idea. So that's a lovely kind of choice to be able to make. When I hear like opposing choices, what I immediately think of is people who are in conflict, people who are on two different sides of a situation. And I'm curious whether this expands to that as well. So it's not just a person making a choice between two really good options that he could go in either direction, and either one would not have the benefit of both. Or if it can apply also to situations where we've got people who are from opposing positions trying to reconcile themselves. Yeah, I think that's one level of complexity more, right? It is one thing if you could go into your office and look at the two opposing models, you know, think of a better answer, or even with a team of like-minded people work together to create a better answer. It does become harder and higher stakes when I hold one model and you hold the opposing model. Because we have this sense that we learn in childhood that if two people disagree, our job is to figure out which one of them is right. We need to choose We need to argue until one of us gives up and says, fine, we'll do it your way. But that is premised on this notion that in a complex social system, we can somehow find this independent, verifiable truth. That's almost never been the case in my managerial career. (laughs) We don't know for sure. We just know what we believe and the evidence that we bring. And so integrative thinking is also about saying... I hold a model. I like it. It's really good. It feels like a great and right answer to me. You disagree. And that should put up a little flag for me. My natural instinct will be to tell you why you're wrong. Instead, integrative thinking suggests that I can ask you to say more. I can ask you to share more about what you believe and why you believe it. I can do the same. And our goal should not be to decide which one of us is right, but to see whether together we can come to a shared understanding. And we've seen the most profound outcomes of this work actually with the folks, the colleagues that we do work with who work with educators. So we've been teaching this to MBAs and executives for about five years. And we had folks come back and say, it's great that you're teaching highly successful leaders how to make better decisions. Could we start just a little bit earlier? Right? Could we actually take elementary school kids, high school kids, and give them a tool for understanding their own thinking building empathy for the perspectives of other people and creating new answers. What would that look like? And so we've seen a lot of the kids who've been trained in this talking about the fact that, yes, it helps them solve problems at school. Yes, it helps them with their coursework, but it helps them relate to their parents differently. It helps them relate to their peers differently. We've actually heard from some parents that they see that in their kids as well. 
It's fascinating. And as you were saying earlier, some people seem to be born naturally with this skill and some people need to have it trained. I'm, I'm curious how you managed to put together a program that would allow people to train in this ability. So for me, this was about deconstructing the stories we'd heard. What did they actually seem to do? And then building out, almost using design thinking, a test and learn approach. I tried a bunch of different ways. <laughs> Roger and I worked together over a long period of time to say, okay, well, we believe that probably in order to create a better answer, you've got to dive deeply into the models, right? Understand them more deeply and really question some of the fundamental assumptions about them. So what would be tools for doing that? You've got to then start to challenge and play and push and look for new insights out of holding the model's intention and what would be questions or tools or prompts you could use. And then how might we help people think about what a recombination or an integration of the models would look like? And so we built out a four-stage process that we think helps groups as much as individuals. Groups are are more effective, we find. Integrative thinking is an individual skill, but it's a team sport. <laughs> I like the way you put that. <laughs> <laughs> it's helpful to have others around you to push the thinking. So four steps that you can go through when you are confronted with that tough either or, should we be centralized or decentralized? Should we be standardized or customized? Should I be a specialist or a generalist? Should I focus on the short run or the long run? The sort of eternal either or choices that every organization, every individual, every leader struggles with. So you said it's a four step process that you put people through. Can you describe how that works? Absolutely. So step one is fall in love with the opposing models. This sounds ridiculous at first, I recognize, but my initial instinct was to say, well, if you've got an either or, there's an obvious tool to default to that we all learn in childhood. My mother certainly told me, you got a tough either or, you get out your legal pad, you draw the line down the middle of the legal pad, you go pros and cons, right? That's what you're supposed to do when you face a tough either or. We tried that and we found that people tended to fixate on what did not work about these models. It made it really hard for them to imagine that a better answer was possible. They tended to get frustrated and say, let's just, let's just choose. Let's just figure out what's the least worst here and move on with our lives. And so we instituted this rule that says at the beginning of the process, when we are seeking to understand what we might want to take forward with us to our better answer, really seek to fall in love with these models and understand what works about them. So we talk about it as a pro-pro chart rather than a pro-con chart. That was a gift from some grade 10s who were working on this with us. (laughs) Natural marketers that they are. So we ask you to think about it from a couple of perspectives. So let's say you were thinking about, should we be centralized or decentralized as an organization? Should our sales team be centralized or decentralized? We'd ask you to think about it from the point of view of your customers, your employees, and your shareholders. For instance, three or so really important stakeholders. And really ask yourself, what would they get if we were totally centralized? Why would that be a fantastic and brilliant answer? And then you do the same for what they would get from being decentralized. So that initial process of articulating the models is to take two very opposing, very extreme and opposing models and seek to understand what would be valuable about choosing that possibility. Interesting. Interesting. And I, I like the pro-pro approach. I've, I've heard people say that in brainstorming, you should not throw out any ideas. And I think a lot of people, myself included, find that a little bit difficult in conversation, but modeling it around what are the positives about each option may make that a little bit easier to swallow. It gives you a little bit more time to let the idea live, right? We are so good at figuring out what's wrong with an idea. We are instantly great at it. The devil's advocate mindset, right? That says, I need to disprove this. But what's interesting about the idea of a devil's advocate, it's a real job. 
devil's advocates really exist. They're hired by the Vatican at the end of the vetting process for a new saint to make the argument about why they shouldn't be a saint. So they're literally the devil's advocate. It happens at the end, though, right? It doesn't happen right at the beginning when someone says, there's this person that I think should be a saint. It doesn't happen right then because no one would ever get to be a saint, right? You have to build up an understanding about why you might see them as saint-worthy before you then can dive into the devil's advocate role of, of trying to be realistic and rigorous in disproving it. I can see why it would be important to put that at the end and how hard it is with the automatic response that we get to do that. So once you've got your pro-pro list together, how do you how do you move forward? This is now where we actually take the opposing models. We want to hold them in tension, right? So we've fallen in love. Now what we want to do is start to look at those models together. How are they similar? How are they different? Where really are the points of tension? In other words, what makes it hard to do both of them well at the same time? What causes it to be a real hard trade-off for us? What assumptions are we making as we fall in love with these models? Have we made big assumptions about why outcomes happen on one side, why they're absent on the other? Are there cause and effect relationships we want to spend a little more time thinking about? So if one of the things we really care about from being decentralized is that you can be agile, does it necessarily follow? Is the only way to be agile to have a decentralized model? Or could a centralized model actually produce enough alignment to let us move quickly on the things that matter most to all of us? So push, challenge, play with and explore what these models actually look like when you hold them in tension. That's the second step. Interesting. That sounds like a step that might require some objective facilitation. It helps to have an objective facilitator throughout, but we think that just having these as questions and having a diverse team enables you to get pretty far, even without an external facilitator. My observation about diverse teams is is we sort of put them in a room together and hope that the magic happens. But without a structure, without a set of questions that they can together work through, it tends to be my experience that the loudest voice wins, right? If we don't have a method or, or, or process for bringing out diverse perspectives, we get one perspective. And so these questions are intended to ask people to push their own thinking and to push each other's thinking together to collaboratively challenge what they've built out in their pro pro chart. And looking for those points of tension, and I can see how that reframes the way the situation looks to people. Yeah, and it's really about looking for those potential leverage points, right? If I just, if I were to question this or press on this or look at it in a different way, might I actually be able to create a better answer? Might I be able to imagine a world in which this trade-off doesn't look the same way, doesn't exist in the same way that I've conceptualized it up till now? Right, and since it's still theoretical, it's a safe place to do that thought experiment. Exactly. And throughout this whole thing, we're really all are engaging in thought experiments. What if I fell in love with this model? What if I questioned these assumptions? What if I really dove into cause and effect here and we're doing it together? And it's unlikely that we're going to actually choose one of the two extremes we started with. It's why we actually want to push them out and make them really extreme so that no one has a particular stake in choosing one of those two we started with. So they are experiments. They're ways of challenging us to think about an old problem in a new way. You know, it didn't dawn on me until you just mentioned it, but the notion of making these extremes, when you make them so extreme, each one becomes sort of unappealing because nobody has a full investment in those. Yeah. And so you are pushing yourself to fall in love with something that probably feels a little uncomfortable. And that in and of itself is useful, right? 
pushing yourself to a place where you feel less comfortable makes you more creative, right? It gives you that spur to want to solve the problem. And so does seeking to fall in love with the models, right? It enables you to see what is valuable and to have a spur to want to bring those together in a new way. Interesting. Okay. So we're at this point, we've gotten through stage two, I believe, right? That's right. And so we want to move on to stage three. And I will be honest and say for a really long time when we were teaching this, stage three was kind of like this. I would say, David, now that you have done all of that thinking, you should go away and try to think of a better answer. Go. (laughs) And often it worked out, you know, people were intuitively able to take the conversation that they just had and use it as a platform for brainstorming. But after a while, our students came back to us and said, just a little more structure would be useful if you wouldn't mind. (laughs) How might we go about conceptualizing what a better answer could be? So at that point, Roger and I went back and we thought about every story we'd heard. All of the folks he'd interviewed for The Opposable Mind, the students he and I had taught, the executives we'd worked with, all of the folks who had attempted to use integrative thinking. And we asked ourselves, was there a pattern in what they did, in how they combined the models? So what did that look like? And might we, out of the pattern pose questions to people. And it turned out, as we looked at it, there were three dominant ways people combined the models. And we could translate those into three questions people could ask as kind of search mechanisms for a better answer. So some people did what we thought the dominant pattern would be. They looked at the two models and they said, I really like one core important thing from this model and one core important thing from the other model. All the rest of it is largely irrelevant. I really want these two things. How would I start afresh with those two things? Combine just these little hidden gems from the models. So it's not so much that I want to be centralized or decentralized. It's that I want agility and alignment. And so how could I use agility and alignment as the new design principles and build something new and cool, interesting, starting from those places? That would be one question. So how might I take a little piece of each model, throw the rest of it away, and build something from those little pieces? That was the first question. We also, though, saw people really be in a position where one of the models was much more appealing, right? They really liked it a lot. But it was missing some core, fundamental, important element of the other model, right? So there was something that that really mattered on the other side that was preventing them from just choosing the first model that they liked so much. In this case, they did something kind of counterintuitive. They doubled down on the model they liked in such a way they even extended it. They pushed it even further, but they did so in such a way that it got them just the one thing they cared about from the other side. So the example I often use here is there's a film festival in Toronto called the Festival of Festivals, originally now the Toronto International Film Festival. The tension they faced was was whether to be very inclusive, very community-minded like they had grown up, or very exclusive and very industry-minded like Khan. The answer for them to greater sustainability was to double down on inclusivity, to become the most inclusive film festival anywhere in the world, to take the audience and make it the centerpiece of the festival, and actually to give the audience a bigger role, to make them the jury of the festival, to have them give the awards. And it turns out that because it takes place in Toronto, a Toronto audience giving an award to a film is actually really valuable to the industry because a Toronto audience, if you've never been to Toronto, it's a very diverse city. And so it's predictive. 
right? If a Toronto audience likes your movie, good bet American audiences will like it, but so too will European audiences and Chinese audiences and audiences around the world. And so it becomes this incredibly valuable film festival where you get real feedback from a real audience on your films. The most inclusive film festival in the world. The thing they were missing that Khan gets is buzz, excitement, energy, Making it more inclusive, really leveraging this Toronto audience made it extraordinarily buzzworthy, right? It is now the most important film festival in the world in terms of deals signed and and films sold because of the role of the audience. So that's the second question. How might I extend the model I really like to get just one thing that I care about from the other side? So that's the second question. Third question Sometimes you look at both models and you say, it's not actually that these are suboptimal models. They're both great models. My problem is I'm not sure how to do them both at the same time, right? So this would be something like centralization and decentralization. There's a lot to love about both of those models, right? And so you could imagine wanting to do both and the challenge is the cost of doing so, right? What you would have to build in order to be both centralized and decentralized. And so in this case, you say, could I break the problem apart differently? Could I ask myself where, under what conditions, in what world does being totally centralized make the most sense? Where, under what conditions, in what world does being totally decentralized make the most sense? What's the dividing line, in other words, in which I can actually have both of these models, apply them to distinct parts of the problem and be better off? And I can see where that brings you. And once you're there, I guess the next step is how do you take that and move it forward? Right. So you've generated a few possibilities, right? The better answer could be A, B, or C. For a long time, that's where we stopped, right? We said, you have your integrated solution, off you go. But we found actually very quickly that we were inspired by the world of design thinking. So we do a lot of work with our friends at IDEO, the great design firm, a lot of the organizations we work with also work with them. And the coolest thing for me, there are many great things about design thinking, but the coolest contribution is this idea that when you have an idea, you're not done. What you need to do in order to have that idea have a chance of living in the world is engage in rapid prototyping. Build that idea, turn it into something concrete and get it in front of other people for their feedback much, much earlier than you feel comfortable with. (laughs) I think it's a brilliant way to help you choose between the possibilities, but also to advance them, to make them better. And so we added a fourth step, which is around prototyping and testing, because we believe that that's a huge contribution from the world of design thinking that we could blatantly steal to improve our model. And I've spoken with a number of people who are specialists in design thinking. And I know one of the challenges often comes around creating prototypes that have built into them the ability to get feedback and be measurable. Absolutely the case. And and so we think about this as being interesting because what we're really talking about are often business models, right? They're not project ideas or products. And so the prototyping is really about storytelling. How do I take this idea and share it with people in a way that they understand what it is and ask for feedback on what works, what doesn't, how we can make it better? And so the question we encourage people to ask around their prototypes is what would have to be true for this to be a great answer? Because what would have to be true lets you imagine the world in which you would do this. Once you identify those conditions, the world would have to look this way. You could then set about figuring out whether the world does look like that, right? It would have to be true that consumers are willing to pay a 3x price premium. It would have to be true that our competitors will do nothing for five years. Okay, 3x price premium, 
Maybe. There's some cases in the world where I've seen that. We could do some testing around willingness to pay. Competitors will do nothing for five years. Feels a little bit harder. It happens, right? If we think about Netflix, for Netflix to be the success that it is today, Blockbuster would have had to see what they were doing and do nothing for five years. And they did, enabling Netflix to be what it is today. What I love about that is it takes the marketing and advertising model and turns it on its side in the sense that with advertising, you might be trying to convince the world to be what you want it to be in order to buy your product. Whereas in this sense, you're looking at what would the world need to be in order to get value out of this product, service, or business model. Exactly. And a few different things can happen. You can say that world does exist. Yay. You can say that world doesn't exist and there's nothing I can do. So I'm going to choose a different model or quite often the world doesn't exist today. It isn't true. This thing that would have to be true is not true. How do I make it true? What would I have to do to create that world? And I think a lot of entrepreneurs quite naturally do this. It's a, it's an intrinsic or, or implicit way that they think about the world. And we're just trying to make that more explicit. And that makes sense. And I'm, I'm really interested. You, you came to this as a business student and you were working with your professor and this kind of drew you in, I'm assuming. But when you introduced yourself originally, you were talking about how your background doesn't really match up with what you're doing these days. And I'm really curious, what brought you over that hump and what brought you into this field? So I was always a writer. I was a copywriter and an editor. I was creative and I loved doing that. It was incredibly fun. When I met Roger for the first time, it was as a student, he introduced me to this idea of integrative thinking. And I'm someone who was always very confident that I'm right, that, you know, there is no better answer. The answer I've got is the right answer and would be deeply frustrated with the people who just didn't understand the brilliance of my idea. And that I think often happens to creatives, right? We have this great, amazing campaign or copy or whatever it is. And these ridiculous business people don't understand the beauty and brilliance of what I'm doing. And so integrative thinking gave me a lens for understanding what I was doing that was making it hard for people to actually engage with my ideas, but also to just open the crack of the possibility that there might be something I don't see that they see that could make my ideas better. So I was intrigued enough from a personal advancement perspective that when he said, you know, why don't you work with me for a year to help me build this into something teachable that I thought that's an experiment that would be worth doing. I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know how this is going to then set me up to my next job, but it's an interesting question to ask. And so I was willing to give that a try. Who was it who was recently saying that the most important thing you can ask yourself about a problem isn't whether you've got the best solution, but whether you're asking interesting questions? I couldn't agree more. Posing interesting questions in the face of challenging problems is how we move forward. And I, I think what's interesting, the structure of scientific revolutions, the history of medicine, even the history of literature, very often it is people outside the orthodoxy, outside the established scientific community or medical community who are best positioned to ask those questions. Einstein wasn't working in a physics department in a university. When he came up with the theory of relativity, he was working as a patent clerk. And so he asked questions no one else was asking. He challenged the orthodoxy. And what we're trying to do is to get people to be more willing to question their orthodoxies a little more often. That makes sense. And so you've been working with this theory for about 10 years now, and I believe Creating Great Choices came out fairly recently. I'm curious, what, have you, what were you doing in the, in the interim to develop the pieces of this and to, to share it and to experiment with the ideas? It really was a lot of trial and error. So we were teaching MBA students. That's where we started. We then started working with executives at companies. And that was really interesting because 
it was no longer theoretical. They needed to go tomorrow and use it to solve a real problem. Or they wanted us to come solve the problem with them and facilitate it in real time. And then we started working with the high school kids and the educators and the elementary school kids. And I, if you have an idea that you want to know whether it will hold water, my recommendation is try to teach it to a kid, right? Because they will not give you the benefit of the doubt. They will not fill in the blanks of your logic in the way that a generous adult will do. You have to be absolutely crystal clear about what you're doing, why you're doing it, what the instructions are. The rational rationale and theory have to be watertight. And so we were doing a lot of this work of building out the theory, honing and refining, moving from fall in love and then look for a better answer to a four-stage model that really could be replicated by more and more groups over time. I can see how it could have been appealing to just go straight down the consulting path and just work with the executives and you know, rake in the bucks and not worry about spreading the ideas. I'm, I'm curious about that choice. Well, I, we do some of that and, you know, we all need to eat. So we, we do, in <laughs> fact, still do some of that that work and enjoy it a lot. I mean, there's a immediacy to working with executives, right? It's a real problem and, and we can make real progress. But frankly... Working with the kids is the most meaningful piece of what we do. Working with educate, we started working with kids and then it became clear that to get scale, you have to work with their teachers. You can't work with an individual group of kids. So it became really clear to us that there was a huge opportunity. If, if you've got a 14-year-old kid and they are facing life-changing choices about do I stay in school or quit and get a job to support my family? Or do I prioritize the connections of my peer group over the connections of my family? And we had kids come to us and and say, you know, they were making choices in their neighborhoods where there's guns and gangs and violence. And the ability to help these kids parse these problems in a new way, see that there might be some other choice they could create to enable them to see their own self-efficacy, their ability to choose differently is really, really meaningful. And so that has been a big focus for us and a big part of what gets us excited about this work is seeing these kids work on real problems, see what they're able to do and walk away believing that they don't have to be choosers, they can be creators in whatever context. I can imagine. I'm curious, what was the aha moment that made you expand your thinking out to working with kids and with educators? So it's not a, an intuitive path for somebody who's doing business work and working with executives. I wish I could claim credit for it. It is was not my idea, nor was it Roger's. We've been teaching in the MBA program for about four or five years. And we had a student who had graduated with her MBA come back to us. And she had come into the MBA from education. She'd been a special education teacher. And this student, a woman named Ellie Avishai, said, I think there's a huge opportunity in education. We should do this. And we know, you know, there's a independent school down the street that would be willing to give it a try. Will you support me in experimenting at this independent school? We said, sure. What do you need from us? A little bit of advice, some time, the willingness to let you use the, the pedagogy. She went and tested and learned with that independent school. We went to the first session where the kids reported back on the project and were blown away. Their thinking was every bit as good as the MBA students, despite being half their age. So there was something that had not happened in the 15 subsequent years of education and work experience that suggested that these kids were absolutely able to do it, absolutely had the capability, and that there could be some real value. And, and once we had done it with this independent school, the Toronto District School Board came to us, the third largest 
school board in North America and said, wonderful that you are working with some extraordinarily privileged kids at an independent school. Maybe you want to open up the lens a little bit and work with kids who are a little less advantaged. Very fair. And so that really began our journey of working with them and a number of other school boards now across the province of Ontario. So how, how broad is your program at this point? So we work with five different school boards quite closely across Southern Ontario right now. And there are a number of charter schools in the States who have picked up the work, who've come and done some training. This year, we trained about a thousand educators across the province. And so it's gotten to quite a big scale, which is really exciting for us. That's amazing. So you're probably putting together a lot of teacher training materials that inform to the work you're doing now. Absolutely. And it looks a lot of different ways, depending on whether we're working with teachers who come to us as individuals or a school-based cohort or a board level. And so we've been building out a program. The kids gave it a name, of course. It's integrative thinking, so they call it I Think. (laughs) Cute, again, natural marketers. And so we've spent a lot of time over the last five or six years really investing in and building that out. So you're keeping track of a lot of different things. I'm really curious how you keep your own life balanced through all of this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a really good question that I wish I had a great answer to. I am one of those people who who doesn't really believe in work-life balance as something that's possible unless you love what you do, right? So I want to give myself completely to whatever I'm doing in that moment. So if I'm at work, I'm at work and I'm passionate and focused and engaged. And when I'm at home, the phone needs to go away and I need to be at home. That tends to be the only way that it works for me. I'd say the first five years I was doing this work, probably a little overly leaned into the work part and let it take over my entire life. Probably wasn't the healthiest decision I could have made. And so I've been building in some fail safes for myself to enable me to step away from work when I need to. That can be challenging, especially when you're doing something that you love. It is true. It is true. But it it is one of those things that I count myself extraordinarily lucky. I've had jobs I didn't love. That is pretty soul destroying. I think one of the most important things we can do as a society is create more good jobs across every spectrum of our society so that I don't have to feel quite so privileged to have a great job. So that's another big either or choice that we got to work through as a society is how do we enable people in, in the burgeoning retail sector and other jobs that are traditionally not great jobs to really find meaning and value in their work as well. And how are you building up understanding and recognition of what you're doing? How are you building an audience for what you're doing so that people understand what it is and how to apply it? So a bunch of different ways. Things like this, talking to you, having your listeners hear about this idea that they might not have heard about otherwise, going and speaking at conferences, those sorts of traditional modes of communicating, but also you know, writing articles, getting the stuff out there. And then our educator community has been extraordinarily active on social media, sharing the work that they do. They are always going to be more creative and better at figuring out what it looks like in a classroom than I could be. I'm not in their classroom. And so I'm always excited to see what they're doing and the community that they build. And, And it really is a community for them, supporting each other in their development. Have you created like an online community for these people to get together and share ideas? So in a few different ways, there are certainly cohorts that have existing communities There's a, I think, Twitter community that writes a lot and communicates a lot around the different hashtags that they have. So those would be the the core places that we've built community. That makes sense. I get a couple of questions in about the way that you put these materials together, because it can be challenging enough to write something by yourself when you are coming up with these ideas all alone. It can be very challenging to work with a co-author. And I'm really curious how that dynamic worked. 
<laughs> it's a great question. Roger and I have been now working together for about 12 years, as I said. Our relationship has changed over that time. Definitively at the beginning, teacher-student, right? So he was the master of this theory. I was just trying to be helpful. I think we're now at a point where we view each other genuinely as colleagues who have co-developed this work that he started. And so in this particular case, the way that we write together is that one of us will write a draft of something. I might take one chapter, he might take another after we've spent some time together roughing out the structure of the narrative and deciding who we want to talk to and doing those interviews very often together. So for the new book, we wanted to talk to Jorgen Wignerstrup of Lego and Jack Bogle of Vanguard and, and a few other great folks, Paul Pullman of Unilever. We did those interviews together. We structured largely what the book would look like. And then I might go away and write some chapters, send them to Roger to play with and edit and tweak. And we iterate sending the chapters back and forth in that way. What tools did you use for sharing information? I'm curious. We're pretty old school. We were Microsoft Word, Dropbox, you know. Um, <laughs> I wish we were more sophisticated and we're using all of these incredibly high-end tools, but it was Microsoft Word with track changes. We should have shares in Dropbox by now. We use that one a lot. That still works. Absolutely. I mean, the track changes makes a big difference. So as you were working together, you say that the relationship evolved over the years. Did it start off more as a mentorship and did it evolve into a colleague relationship? I think very explicitly at the, at the outset, Roger took a mentoring role to me and I'm extraordinarily grateful. He is one of the most important management thinkers in the world. And so to have that opportunity w was remarkable. And he is one of those people that once you do something well, he'll give you more to do and more to do and more to do. And I think over time, he still, I think, is my mentor. Once you're someone's mentor, that's always part of the relationship. But he has for quite some time now treated me as, as a colleague and a peer. Was he the first person in your career or in your in your life, I suppose, who you approached as a mentor? He's actually not. When I was working as a copywriter and an editor, I had an amazing boss. I worked for a company called Sears Canada that no longer exists. It's not my fault, just <laughs> for the record. But I had a boss there by the name of Karen Reed, who was just an incredibly kind, gracious, inspiring woman. And it was amazing for me. I was very early in my career to have a woman that I could look up to. And she really did encourage me, give me really hard, big, messy problems to work on that enabled me to grow and stretch in ways that I wouldn't have imagined. Sounds like it's a very useful thing. And, and mentorship itself has a long history in the type of work that you're doing as well. Have you found yourself in that role for anybody else yet? So I do a lot of work with our iThink team. And so we have uh, a number of folks on that team who are building out the teaching community. And I work very hard to be both mentor and sponsor to them. So making sure that they are getting opportunities to push and challenge themselves, that I'm making sure that they really own and feel passion for the work that they do. And how do you stay on top of all of the thinking and all of the reading? I mean, the field that you're in, so many people are contributing in different ways. And there are so many new ideas coming from so many directions. What do you do to stay on top of all of that? You know what? Twitter is an underrated tool for this. I follow a lot of folks on Twitter who are constantly sending out interesting articles, interesting ideas. I mean, you could just follow Adam Grant. And if you only followed him, you would learn almost everything you need to know about the interesting things that are being written and said in the world today. You can follow others like Dan Pink and, and other folks as well, but Adam is a great resource. And so that is really a great place. The educators are constantly tweeting things, fellow business school professors, authors that I admire. And so I really use that as a place to get new ideas. Anybody special you're reading right now? 
I am actually right now doing a lot of reading on democratic capitalism and the global economy. There's a project we're working on. And so I've been uh, diving into economic theory lately. Interesting. You don't sound particularly comfortable with that yet. (laughs) I'm not an economist, so it is stretching my model. But I think we're at a place now where democratic capitalism is at risk, in part because we've lost the ability to speak to each other across the left-right divide. And so we're thinking about whether there's anything we would have to say that could be useful to us in that. I'm sure you're not the only one who was thinking that the left-right divide right now is a place where integrative thinking might be very useful. It's true. So the last book I read was Joan Williams' White Working Class. Fascinating read on essentially Trump voters and how we tend to, as members of a sort of intellectual elite, for want of a better term, disparage them, talk about them as dumb, talk about their values as not being terribly progressive or enlightened. And she does a lot of really interesting work on helping us think about what the white working class really is and what their values are and how they are similar or different to how we think about it. And so very, very interesting and pairs really, really well with Jonathan Haidt's work called The Righteous Mind, which is another way of thinking about how we model the world differently depending on our backgrounds and our context and how we can think differently about those things. If you can find a way for the people on the two sides of that opposing viewpoint to fall in love with each other's ideas, I'll be very impressed. (laughs) I will also. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. It is a problem worth thinking more about. I'll say that. Well, I think everybody out here is wishing you the best. How can people who are listening to the show find out more about what you're doing and get in touch? I'm pretty easy to find. I am a Twitterer, so you can find Jennifer Riel on Twitter, LinkedIn as well. The book is widely available on Amazon and, and elsewhere, so would be delighted if you if you found it there. And then you can find me at the Rotman School. So just Google Jennifer Riel Rotman School and you can get in touch with me that way. Great. Jennifer Riel at the Rotman School and creating great choices. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit HackTheProcess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.